Thank you for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Dr. John Nidecker about combat sports. Dr. Nidecker is a physician for USA Boxing and Taekwondo, and is on the board of directors for the Association of Ringside Physicians. He works across many sports as a team physician, and is passionate about all things fight medicine. Dr. Nidecker, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. Last week, the Association of Ringside Physicians Concussion Management in Combat Sports Consensus Statement was published online in the BJSM. Congratulations on the consensus statement and leading the publication. Thank you. It's a it's a big job and a, a lot of hard work with a lot of a lot of people working on it. Could you start by giving our listeners a brief overview of the statement and why it's needed? Uh, absolutely. So this actually was a process that that started about two years ago. We recognized as an organization that there needed to be some type of guidelines when it came to combat sports and concussion. As uh, most of the listeners know that there's been lots of research and, you know, the conferences um, regarding uh, concussion and sport. But most of these conferences and most of these research research really focuses on the non-combat sports. Considering the inherent difference of what combat sports uh, objective is, we believed it was important to come out with our own consensus statement on how to uh, manage concussion in combat sports. And what what we thought would be the right way to do this is to take the guidelines that have been set forth and all the hard work that has been done in these other uh, consensus statements, specifically the most recent one with Berlin, and combine that with the best practices that are happening in combat sports. Because there was not anything as a guideline per se, that was universal, but there was a lot of guidelines that are very segmented because there's a lot of, the problem with combat sports is there's so much separation because there's so many different sports, but there's also different jurisdictions and where things take place. So there's not as much of a streamlined thing as other things. So we wanted to take the best of both worlds and kind of put them together for best practice. Before we get into the consensus statement itself, could you talk to us about some of the sports that fall under the combat sports umbrella? Mm-hmm. Mainly in, in what our statement is aimed at is, is boxing, kickboxing, mixed martial arts, and to a degree, uh, some of the point fighting uh, different combat sports that are out there, like taekwondo, like point karate. But the mainly the big three is boxing, kickboxing, mixed martial arts. How common is concussion in those sports? Concussion is common in, in combat sports, but to actually give you the rates and the specific statistics of it, I, I probably can't do it justice in the sense that lots of research that is out there is based on really incomplete data or data that you're trying to extrapolate a thought of whether or not a concussion was sustained because most of the data that's out there has to deal with results of outcomes. So just because somebody had a TKO, you don't know whether or not a concussion was sustained or not. By TKO, do you mean technical knockout? Technical knockout, that is correct. And for our listeners, what is the difference between a knockout and a technical knockout? Well, um, it really depends on the sport. When a knockout is sustained in boxing or kickboxing, that means that the fighter was not able to get up after the referee counted to 10 after they were knocked down. That could be to a headshot a head uh, head blow, but that could also be to a body blow as well. So obviously with the head blow, 
there's probably some type of neurological impact that happens that's consistent with a concussion, whether it be loss of consciousness, whether it be a balance dysfunction or something like that. But when a fighter suffers a TKO in, in boxing or kickboxing, that could be for a number of reasons. It could be that the fighter or the corner actually stopped the fight. They felt they were outmatched. They were outclassed. And rather than get seriously hurt, they basically throw in the towel. The referee can stop the fight if he feels that a fighter is not defending themselves uh, appropriately. The doctor can stop the fight due to any type of medical condition, whether that be a laceration, whether they feel that the fighter is too injured to continue. And those would all fit under the realm of TKO. But and there's plenty of cases where that isn't the, the case. When it comes to mixed martial arts, there are a number of ways a fight can end. Typically, what is deemed as a KO in mixed martial arts is someone lost consciousness uh, due to a, a head strike. The, the ref steps in, the, the fighter is obviously unconscious, and the fight is over. But many fights that end in TKO in, uh, in mixed martial arts could be for any of the reasons that I just stated with, with boxing as well. If an athlete does sustain a suspected head injury during a fight, could you take us through the process of evaluation and your role and the role of the medical team there at the fight? So that is a, that's a great question, and the question has a number of answers because there's a number of ways to do it based on where you are, what sport you're covering, and the ringside physician's experience, and whether or not there's multiple physicians or multiple healthcare providers covering the event. To keep things simple, if there is a head injury that is that is sustained and the ringside physician is concerned that there's a concussion that took place, but the fight has yet to be stopped, typically what has happened, uh, what happens is the ringside physician will alert the referee and that's usually that's usually done in between rounds. And the ringside physician will go inside the ring, evaluate the fighter, and see if there's any signs, symptoms, or concerns that there is a concussion. Once that athlete has been diagnosed with a concussion, is there a minimum suspension period he or she has to serve before returning to the next fight? Yes, and that also, in, in, considering our, um, our statement that just came out, that has to deal with a, a couple of different factors. Typically, what has been done and what is currently the best practice is minimum suspensions based on TKO and KO, whether or not there's with, uh, loss, with loss of consciousness or, or not. The typical guidelines of what most jurisdictions do is that if a TKO is sustained, that fighter will be suspended for a, from competing from a, for a minimum of 30 days. If a KO is sustained without loss of consciousness, it's a 60-day minimum suspension. If there's a KO with loss of consciousness, then it would be a 90-day minimum suspension. And I use the word minimum there because if you know, it's it's really up to the covering ringside position. If they want to take that out longer, they, most jurisdictions let them let them do that. Does that minimum suspension period apply across multiple combat sports? If you have an athlete who is competing in a number of different disciplines and say gets knocked out in boxing, could they go on to compete in kickboxing before their suspension is up? That is an excellent question, and we would. My answer to you is we would hope so. Databases are now getting better. When you're fighting in professional in professional combat sports, whether it be boxing, kickboxing, mixed martial arts, 
you usually get you're you're going to get put into a, a, a international database about what your outcome was. They're getting better with with that crossover in sport, but that definitely was a problem, um, which is certainly being being looked at. And the fight databases are trying to integrate, you know, the three sports together because that that actually is happening more and more often now in the sense that you have mixed martial artists that are actually competing in in kickboxing and boxing events. You don't have a boxer that really competes in MMA much, but you do definitely get these MMA fighters that that do cross disciplines. So I guess that's a long-winded way to say that we would hope so, but sometimes things have fallen through the cracks and that is getting better over time. In the consensus statement, you talk about a return to fighting protocol that is divided into three phases. Could you talk us through the phases and how it compares to other non-combat sports return to sport protocols? Absolutely. So our return to fight protocol is certainly based off the most recent consensus statement from Berlin with this gradual stepwise of return to play. Again, we're dealing with a different sport with a different objective. So we believe that there should be a couple of other steps in addition to what is currently uh, out there in publication. There was a, a great group of people in the United States and Arizona. Bryce Nalapa, he's a certified athletic trainer who is who is really the the developer of this whole protocol here. And what we do is we break it into phases and each phase has three steps. Our first phase is more of the return to general fitness. And I think this is more more in line with non-combat sports first initial, you know, steps in, in return to return to sport. After the return to uh, general fitness phase, we move on to the return to non-contact fighting activities. And this is more of a way to kind of drag out that that step in non-combat sports that is, I guess, equates to the return to non-contact practice. There's lots of uh, bag and mitt workout, shadow boxing drills, and, and one-sided uh, grappling and sparring. Once a combat sports athlete has become symptom-free and cleared to, uh, cleared to participate in contact, that's when we move on to phase three, and that's the sparring phase. And that's where each of the different three steps in the sparring phase increase in intensity, length and duration in sparring and intensity. In essence, it, it does follow the non-combat sports timeline. It's just a little bit broken up into different phases and, and, and drug out a little bit longer. What can be done to minimize the risk of concussion in combat sport athletes? Well, that's a good question, and I think it does have a number of answers. But one thing I think comes with that question is knowing what the actual objective in combat sports is. And some would actually say that one of the objectives is to cause a concussion. So I don't think we'll ever eliminate the the risk of concussion in combat sports for that reason. But I think one of the things that can decrease this risk is awareness and the fact that there's a lot of misconceptions, especially in the combat sports culture, that concussions aren't concussions, but they really are. So I think with this, with recognition and better education, that could certainly cut down on the risks actually associated with concussion. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to actually decrease concussions itself. I think the dehydration issue may have something to do with it, and we can certainly get into that in a a little bit later. And, you know, as far as the equipment, the gear, all that thing, all those things, at least at this point in time, I don't think there is any any risk uh, reduction 
whether it be with headgear or gloves or anything like that. Besides concussion, what are some of the other common injuries in combat sports? That depends on what, what sport we're talking about. With the three major sports of boxing, kickboxing, and mixed martial arts, lacerations are are definitely a big part of the fight game. You'll see more lacerations in mixed martial arts than you will with the other two. Orthopedic injuries are another thing that you will see, and hand injuries for obvious reasons, but you'll definitely see other orthopedic injuries in mixed martial arts due to the different holds and joint locks and, and things that happen with the grappling. There are, are eye injuries, and eye injuries are more common in mixed martial arts as well, just because of the of the fingers being exposed. So there are more eye pokes, injuries of that sort. But eye injuries do happen in boxing and kickboxing. Retinal, retinal injuries are, are definitely something that you'll see. Other injuries that also can be sustained is just like any type of close contact sport, Wrestling has its problems with skin lesions and uh, skin infections. Mixed martial arts has also has that for the for the same reasons, uh, based on you know the close proximity and the grappling that happens. Another big medical issue which you mentioned before within your world is weight cutting. Could you explain what it is, how it's done, and some of the associated medical problems? So with any sport that that is based on weight, this is something that these sports had had to deal with. Obviously, I think the thing that most sports medicine doctors are familiar with is the problems that have occurred with wrestling and the weight cutting problems and the different medical problems that that could cause with kidney failure and heat stroke. Wrestling has done a good job about regulating the different ways and and how much weight you can lose based on body fat percentage. But when it comes to combat sports, I think this is probably... If it's not as big as concussion, it, it might be even bigger at this point in time as the biggest health risk concern and what's going on. There are plenty of instances that happen each year of, of fighters going to the hospital, trying to cut weight and get down to a lower weight class for different reasons, whether it be a perception of, of them believing that they can have an advantage by, by getting down to a weight class and then re- rehydrating very quickly over the next day or two. But but sometimes it's it's who your competition is and maybe you can there's some better fighters at a higher weight class and getting down to a lower weight class would be in your best interest for for competitive reasons. The problem is in in I think in combat sports, which is different than than wrestling is is the weigh in. The weigh in is now an actual spectacle. You see weigh ins on TV. So it's actually become an event nowadays. And you see these guys weigh in, but they want the weigh in the day before. So I think the weight cutting practices that you've seen in wrestling are even magnified when it comes to combat sports because in wrestling you usually weigh in the day of your competition, whereas now you get this day before that allows the the fighters to cut drastic amounts of weight. I was recently at the Association of Boxing Commissions conference, and this was probably the most debated topic. There's a lot of different ways that different commissions and different sanctioning bodies are trying to combat this problem. Some, in my opinion, may be better than others, but the good news is that there's there's steps in the right direction that are happening. What are some of those steps in the right direction? Well, one is very uh, timely in the sense that the Association of Boxing Commissions recommended a guideline of a maximum of 10% weight gain from from the day before to the next day. So they are actually recommending a second weigh in the day of the event. 
So for, for instance, if the weight class was 150 pounds and you're going to have to translate that into kilos for me, that would mean that they could only gain 15 pounds the next day. So that's one step in the right direction. Some other promotions are actually using urine-specific gravities uh, the day of the weigh-in. If they have a, a too high of a specific gravity, then that they can't weigh in. Uh, their weigh-in doesn't count. There's another uh, recommendation to kind of go by the same recommendations that many of the wrestling organizations are using in determining a you know body fat percentage and and the lowest weight you can go based on a minimum body fat after calculations are done. A lot of these different ways of of curbing the weight cutting are not perfect, but but it's definitely something that it's better than nothing that and which was what was happening, you know, recently, uh, even over the last five years. Many clinicians and medical associations have taken a public stand against boxing and combat sports generally. Some even refuse to treat athletes with combat sport injuries. How do you respond to critics who claim that clinicians like yourself should not be present ringside and even go as far as to say that sports like boxing should be banned? It's a very difficult question to answer because I think there is a true dichotomy uh, with the type of thinking here. And I totally get what the objectors to to combat sports and physicians uh, treating combat sports are, are getting at. You know, our first job is to do no harm. And you know, we are actually letting these guys go into the into the ring and do harm on each other. But at the same time, I think there is no purer form of competition that is out there. It's sometimes beautiful to see, as as crazy as that may sound, what what some of these athletes can do. So most of us ringside physicians are are fans. We we enjoy the sport. We love the sport. Um, most of us uh, actually train ourselves. And my response, I guess, to the, the critics of that would be that this is happening. It's going to happen. And the best thing that we can do is be there to provide medical care and make this as safe as it possibly can be. Dr. Nidecker, I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Pleasure. If our listeners would like to find out more about you or the Association of Ringside Physicians, where should they go? Well, the Association of Ringside Physicians, uh, our website is ringsidearp.org. There's a lot of good information on the website about ringside medicine, handouts. There's some other statements that we have put out, not in publication, but more or less on our website. We have an annual conference our next conference will be at the end of October in Las Vegas for obvious reasons. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. John Nidecker. Thank you again, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. You've been listening to a BJSM podcast with Dr. John Nidecker. You can read the Association of Ringside Physicians Concussion Management and Combat Sports consensus statement online today. Otherwise, you can follow BJSM and stay up to date via the usual social media channels or download the BJSM app where you can find more podcasts, our latest articles, blog posts, and other content. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.